Butterflies, Dead Dukes, The Gypsy Wheel, and The Ministry of Strangeness. Since at least the days of Kropotkin, Kropotkin, anarchists have consciously distanced themselves from the idea of chaos. Legends have even been white-whispered that the mysterious Circle A represents order and chaos. Nearly every, quote, serious anarchist writer in recent years has tried to distance anarchism from chaos. Yet, for most ordinary people, chaos and anarchy are forever linked. The connection between chaos and anarchism should be rethought and embraced instead of being downplayed and repressed. Chaos is the nightmare of rulers, states, and capitalists. For this and other reasons, chaos is a natural ally in our struggles. We should not polish the image of anarchism by erasing chaos. Instead, we should remember that chaos is not only burning ruins, but also butterfly butterfly wings. Prediction is power. Auguste Comte, father of sociology. Since the Enlightenment, politicians have attempted to use scientific principles in politics and economics in order to control the populace. The arrogance of sociologists, economists, and other such experts is clear in their belief that human desire can be measured, ordered, and thus controlled. The attempts to predict and control all possibilities have long been the wet dream of totalitarians and advertising executives worldwide. Since Marx, who fancied himself a, quote, scientist of mass behavior, unquote, Revolutionary vanguardists of all stripes have believed they have discovered the perfect equation for revolution, a paint-by-the-numbers approach to social change. Both professional politicians and professional revolutionaries struggle to become consummate experts at manipulating the political machine. The actual politicians just happen to be better at this than their activist cousins. It's no surprise that the sociologists of revolution, earnest college Marxists, and the anarcho-literae that are so enamored with platforms, policies, histories, and dry theories. Unfortunately for them, and fortunately for us, chaos refuses to play by any rules. A little goes a long way. Quote, The flapping of a single butterfly's wing today produces a tiny change in the state of the atmosphere. Over a period of time, what the atmosphere actually does diverges from what it would have done. So, in a month's time, a tornado that would have devastated the Indonesian coast doesn't happen. Or maybe that one that wasn't going to happen does. End of quote. Edward Lorenz, Meteorologist, 1963. The smallest change in initial conditions of a system can drastically change its long-term behavior. This phenomenon, common to chaos theory, is known as sensitive dependence on initial conditions. A tiny amount of difference in in a measurement might be considered experimental noise, background static, or minor inaccuracy. Such easily dismissed changes can grow exponentially and compound in unexpected ways to create equally unexpected results far greater than anyone might imagine. These glitches and ghosts in the machine are far too random to be predicted by any government supercomputer. Anarchists can therefore take advantage of strange turns of events, using chaos as a secret weapon against regimes of control. 
Who knows if a woman refusing to give up her seat on a bus will launch a civil rights movement, or if a tiny but angry band of kids gathering at a local hot dog food stand at the right moment will set off a full-scale insurrection. Chaos can turn the tables on even the most established dinosaurs. In fluid situations such as demonstration, seemingly inconsequential events can often shift the tone or direction of the entire system, leading to chaos in the best possible sense of the word. The politicians of the world hardly foresaw that the killing of Archduke Ferdinand and some backwater of the Austro-Hungarian Empire would lead to the breakup of three of the world's largest empires in less than a decade. Obviously, the political tensions of the day existed independent of the dead duke, but his assassination lit a fuse whose resulting explosion destroyed the political and economic realities of empires. In the same manner, a butterfly flapping its wings at a skillshare in rural West Virginia had the potential to create a hurricane or revolution in Argentina. Surfing the Fractal Waves of Revolution Chaos is actually more real than a world easily divided into discrete objects and linear equations. These fantastical objects are too perfect to be real in anything other than a mathematician's textbook. The real world is a messy, feisty, and subject to constant changes beyond the grasp of any human. Abstractions can sometimes be useful when planning battles with cops, sketching out schemes for the next year, and reading maps in cities you've never been to before. Yet most abstractions do a disservice to the real world by neglecting the tiny details. The world is chaotic, and every time someone believes they can control it, the world finds another way yet to throw them off balance. Fractal theory has shown that the real world is less, quote, real than we first imagined. In a much-discussed essay about the coastline of England, it was shown that the size and shape of the measuring unit dramatically affected the final outcome. If we use a straight meter stick, we will measure a shorter coastline than if we use a small curved millimeter stick. The coast of England, like it or not, is infinitely flexible. Even if you had a one-to-one map of a particular city, it could never fully represent that city. There are many cities in any particular city, and our picture of it depends on how we observe our surroundings and what we choose to place emphasis on. The advantage of these bourgeois realities, not sure how to pronounce that word, Realities is that anarchists have access to multiple lenses to use and understand the world. In, lo- in the political realm, authorities agree to limit themselves to one true representation while we keep our eyes open to chaotic possibilities. Anarchists can use differing perspectives and scales to determine what projects are worth working on. By the linear and grand measuring stick of global revolution, the details blur and many essential projects seem less important. Revolution, like the coast of England, is influenced by what evaluating tools we use. We can utilize this flexibility in our measuring sticks to our advantage. Duty and joy are only part of the range of our motivations. Personal liberation, class war, global environmentalism, and and political autonomy, political struggles are all different formulas of measuring the value of an action or project. 
When applied to a situation, each will yield a different result. Luck is the rebel's ally. We must become allies of luck if we are to overcome the huge odds stacked against our endeavors. We cannot blindly enter the casino of political revolution and not realize the house, the status quo, is stacked against us. We can seek out luck where others have missed it. Luck is a combination of spontaneous, spontaneous coincidences that we can recognize and use to our advantage. These events cannot be planned or manufactured. Luckily for us, this complex world is filled to the brim with potentially critical coincidences that are available to any rebel intrepid enough to seek them out. This means making our plans flexible and being able to deal with these possibilities at a moment's notice. Finding a forgotten dumpster outside a parade route can easily mean the difference between getting through a police checkpoint and being thwarted, especially if that dumpster is used as a battering ram. How can we use chaos to our advantage in our daily resistances? When situations are unpredictable and the outcomes are unknowable, how can we hope to use such a fit friend as an ally? These are questions for anarchist cabals and think tanks worldwide. We can learn from every experience and not become so arrogant in thinking we can pre-plan every event in advance. Though we try. Rigid hierarchical systems fear chaos, reject fractals, dismiss luck. The arrogance of dinosaurs is a great advantage to our resistance. Fractalized resistance cannot be adequately met by pre-designed management and crowd control strategies. It is important to realize that we are not the first ones to use chaos as a tactic. Chaos is integrated into a number of ancient and not-so-ancient cultures, from the Hopi to the San Bushmen. A number of communities have not only become comfortable with the inherent chaos of the world, but have found effective ways to use it. Cultures of Chaos The nomadic Rom also known as gypsies, have been a, quote, problem for anthropologists for over a century. Relatively small in number and lacking any semblance of economic, military, or political power, they have resisted assimilation, assimilation for over 600 years. The gypsies possess a fascinating and chaotic system of mutual aid based on the myth of the gypsy wheel. Material aid is freely provided to other travelers with the idea that it will be returned to the individual at some time in the future when it is needed. Only on the road, a traditional, traditionally liminal space, is mutual aid given out randomly to those who ask. This form of mutual aid is dependent on a complex and ever-shifting constellation of naturally occurring signs that outsiders believe to be quaint superstitions. Because these omens appear randomly, no individual can consciously manipulate them. Outside observers have just started to see this is the fundamental survival strategy that the Rom peoples have used against societies that wish to destroy or assimilate them. This nonlinear approach to mutual aid may appear at first too random to work for a whole society, but it has remained the supporting foundation of Rom culture. Our own interactions and generosity with strangers today often bring unexpected bounties far beyond any measurement, and always at the right time. And another example from a much larger culture in a different era. For over a thousand years, the Chinese Empire consulted a, quote, ministry of strangeness, 
unquote, for advice when imperial plans failed or produced unexpected results. The Ministry of Strangeness was traditionally kept in the dark about any of the original plans. The Ministry would then consult the I Ching, the random throwing and configuration of yarrow sticks, to create new plans. This effective practice was stopped when the science-oriented conqueror Genghis Khan took over. Ironically, his son, his son Kablai Khan, reintroduced and even expanded the Ministry of Strangeness. Instead of slavishly replicating unsuccessful models and projects, we should not be afraid to try outrageous and untested schemes. In the more specifically revolutionary realm, chaos is a tool that can knock down even the mightiest of giants. Saboteurs know that the simplest items, even a wooden shoe, can be used to disrupt the most efficient and complicated systems. Actually, the more complex the system is, the easier it is to sabotage. The economic equivalent of the state's weakness to chaos is that as capitalists become more and more dependent on technology and bureaucracy, they increase their vulnerability to chaotic forms of resistance, such as hacking. Let's acknowledge chaos as an important part of political and social change. We can integrate it as a factor into our daily lives. Chaos is the wild card that allows a small community such as ours to have an impact much greater than expected by the experts. In fact, larger groups tend to have more inertia and rarely take advantage of the flux of the world. As long as we are not tied down to rigid tactics and brittle models, we will be able to adapt in ever-shifting environments. With a healthy dose of suspicion towards vanguardists and experts who have the correct vision, platform, or policy for change, we can always keep our eyes open to the unexpected possibilities of chaos. Cell, click, or affinity group. The term affinity group is often bandied around in anarchist circles. However, there are quite a few misconceptions of the exact nature of affinity groups and how we can use them to bring about radical change. Affinity group structure shares some obvious characteristics with both cells and cliques, yet they exist in different contexts. It can be very difficult for an outside observer to determine if any particular group of people is a cell, a clique, or an affinity group, and this has undoubtedly led to confusion. All three groups are made up of a few individuals, say three to nine, who work together, support each other, and have a structure typically closed to outsiders. Depending on their goals, they may engage in a multitude of projects ranging from the mundane to the revolutionary, but the similarities end there. A cell is a part of a larger organization or a movement with a unified political ideology. Often cells receive direction from the larger community that they are a part of. Generally, cells are, quote, work-oriented and do not rely on socialization as a primary goal. Particular cells are connected to one another in the same organization by a shared vision, though they may employ a range of tactics. A clique, on the other hand, is a group of people that have cut themselves off from a larger community or organization. Social cliques are common. Good examples can be found in any high school or in groups such as jocks, preppies, geeks, or nerds. 
Cliques tend to be isolated and prefer to create inflexible boundaries between themselves and the rest of the community they are associated with. Cliques rarely have a focus on work or projects. An affinity group is an autonomous group of individuals that shares a particular vision. Though the vision may not be identical amongst its members, an affinity group shares certain common values and expectations. Affinity groups emerge out of larger communities, whether they are environmentalists in a particular bioregion or members of hip-hop group who perform together. Any two affinity groups emerging from the same community may have wildly different perspectives, interests, and tactics. This variety is uncommon amongst cells. Affinity groups maintain a stronger connection to their own communities and usually seek ways to connect to other affinity groups and organizations in that community. In this way, they differ from cliques that seek to be separate. An affinity group may also work closely with other groups outside their own original community. Affinity groups have the political advantage of being able to create connections that bridge diverse communities. Though affinity groups are mostly, mostly closed structures, a common criticism leveled by dinosaurs, most anarchists feel comfortable being part of multiple affinity groups. These personal, inter personal interact interconnections between affinity groups can foster greater affinity and understanding between diverse communities and generate substantial solidarity. This is the cross-pollination effect. For example, a member of a direct action affinity group who happens to be also a member of a feminist media collective can create opportunities for both groups. The media collective may also may become more militant, while the direct action group can be more open to feminist practices and ideas. Instead of trying to merge direct action media and radical feminism into an unwisely supergroup, the activist can pursue her multiple interests in two groups that put their focus on the main interest. Paradoxically, these closed affinity groups provide a safe and supportive place for broader affinities to develop, thus creating a wider web of mutual aid, understanding, and support. While it is important to acknowledge the contextual limitations of the cell and clique models, it is a mistake to write off the affinity group for being elitist or closed. Affinity groups provide tremendous possibilities for increasing the number of connections between communities while allowing folks a supportive environment to pursue their particular interests and affinities. Pride, Purity, and Projects Anarcho-pride is something worth promoting in our projects and our lives. It is a form of transparency, allowing those who we engage with to know in shorthand what we believe and how to behave. In short, it is honest. Anarcho-purity is the dark shadow of anarcho-pride. Purity demands that everyone who works together must share the same politics, agendas, and behavior, not only for a given time or project, but for the entirety of their lives. This creates a dysfunctional and unneeded strain of political puritanism that can cripple communities and create absurd, more anarchist than thou debates. These debates have ravaged the animal rights and vegan communities, not to mention dinosaur ideologies such as Christianity. The difference between pride and purity are subtle, but extraordinarily important. These differences affect how we work with others and 
with whom we choose to spend time interacting with. Anarcho Pride allows us to work with individuals who appreciate, if not share, our organizational principles, visions, and goals. It allows all involved to make informed decisions, whether that be putting on a benefit together or taking to the streets together. Yet many people who are anarchists are wary of broadcasting this fact to others. They fear that anarcho pride will alienate potential allies. Unfortunately, being in the closet about our motivations is paternalistic and condescending and can mean easy rationalization for dishonesty. Hiding our identities as anarchists presumes that other people are not intelligent or savvy enough to make the decision to work with us based on our actual politics. Political openness allows all groups to share their true goals and interests. Openness inoculates coalitions and partnerships against resentment and later misunderstandings. If group or individuals choose not work with us because we are anarchists, then we should respect that decision. This is better than trying to fool them into thinking we are something else and swinging it on them, quote, after the revolution or street action, as the case may be. Striving to create frank and open dialogue with groups and individuals you wish to work with is our best chance to genuine, to foster genuine solidarity. At the doorstep of anarchist community. Since its infancy, anarchism, like any, like many international social movements, has been defined by its politics. No bones about it. We are political beings. Anarchists have a clear list of enemies, the state, capitalism, and hierarchy. We have an equally clear list of desires, mutual aid, autonomy, and decentralization. While we're placing bets that anarchy will provide a better life than the dinosaurs, there is little stopping anarchism from becoming yet another orthodoxy, just as bad as communism, socialism, liberalism, reformism, capitalism, Mormonism, or any other ism. Developments in the past several years in North America have shown that the specific tendency or narrow brand of anarchist politics are not as important as the shared communities that we are creating out of those, those politics. These communities are held together by practices, tactics, and culture. We don't have to be monoculture. Instead, think of anarchy as an ecology of cultures, like microbes in a petri dish or a protest in the streets something that demands and thrives off diversity. Like any group of friends who work and live together, we are developing a shared culture despite our diverse origins. Every group of anarchists, including the many people who live by anarchist principles without ever opening a book like Kropotkin, Emma, or Crime Think, creates its own unique practices and cultures. We are weary of any new orthodoxy, although that is what people raised in the West are trained to desire most, the next big thing, be it an author, TV show, movement, or anything other than what we are doing in our own lives. Because culture can be so fluid, transferable, and mutatable, this has worked to our advantage. Instead of anarchy from above, dictated by media darlings or experts, there are dozens of competing, diverging, and mutating versions of anarchy. This is a fundamentally good development, since most anarchists, most anarchists are happy with this looseness and diversity. The monoculture of dinosaurs can be rejected in favor of vibrant folk anarchies. 
Community is something that anarchists recognize and strive for, yet what exactly these communities should be doing has been the cause of many bitter debates. Depending on who you ask, it might be a pirate radio station available to a neighborhood, urban guerrilla warfare, a collective house, torching ski resorts, a jazz show, shooting pigs, or a giant demonstration. These differences lead to a to banal arguments that rarely aid the cultures or communities that the critics long for. Instead of spending time grandstanding at the podium, we all can stand to spend most more of our time creating some semblance of anarchist societies within the deranged culture we presently live in. These communities of resistance are happening throughout the world through the creation of semi-permanent autonomous zones like info shops and community gardens free clinics and organic farms, collective houses and permanent performance spaces, not permanent performance spaces. We'd see glimpses of a better world in temporary autonomous zones like mobilizations and convergences, squats and tree, tree sets, street parties and free feasts. Because creating community is hard work, our time is best spent actually manifesting and expressing our passions expressing our passions in these arenas, not merely talking about them. Autonomous zones are the physical manifestation of the ideas that have grown so much in recent years, even if they appear only to be tiny storefronts, basement libraries, and warehouses scattered across North America. These are the laboratories and workshops of anarchy. As our networks expand, so has our ability to talk to each other. Our capacity to communicate has been extremely successful and prolific, music, writing, and performance. Dozens of anarchist newspapers, thousands of zines, and handfuls of books have created a media of expression and dissent. What we have today is merely a drop in the bucket compared to the capitalist media machinery, but we should not attempt to compete with them. Rejection of mass doesn't mean that anarchists are doomed to be a tiny, irrelevant minority for the rest of our existence. It is possible for hundreds of thousands of collectives and affinity groups to work together in solidarity and respect for their differences. You can't blow up a social ecologist. Anarchy is based on the premise that leaders are neither necessary nor desirable. Yet this maxim has made little impact in the authoritarian wing of the anti-authoritarian movement. Certain individuals, almost always older men with beards, develop cult followings that continue in a completely different historical context, long after their deaths. It's sad that many anarchists identify with one little clique or another, read only certain magazines, try vainly to convince everyone that their particular version of anarcho-purity is one white what is the one right way trademarked. These petty squabbles between factions have done far more damage to anarchy itself than any number of possible convert converts to ideas could merit. If anarchists could manage only manage to throw insults at each other over lofty theoretical issues, then of course fewer people outside the anarchist ghetto will take our ideas seriously. Anarchists should not treat each other as potential enemies and competitors for some cultural or political turf, but as potential friends and comrades in desperate need of folks with different ideas and strategies. We aren't perfect, 
And just like everyone else, escaping a traumatic experience such as modern Western society, most of us still carry bad habits such as dogmatism, sexism, and paternalism. A measure of mercy for ourselves would go far. But the last thing our community should resemble is a political party with purges and power plays. Better we become a tribe that takes care of its own. Survival, whether in the savannas of Africa or the strip malls of the United States, means taking care of each other. Before we obsess about reaching outside organizations or the unpoliticized masses of the working class or anyone beyond our anarchist communities, we should first learn to relate to each other based on solidarity, mutual aid, understanding, and respect. The empathy used when we take care of each other is the most creative tool we have to engage the rest of the world. Intellectual nitpicking tells us these competing factions could never have a civil debate over coffee, much less work together on a practical project, right? Yet working on common projects is exactly what anarchists of different backgrounds are doing more of. We don't need unity in theory, we need solidarity in practice. Once we acknowledge and embrace our collective differences, we'll be able to spread the practice of anarchy throughout our communities in the world. Going beyond cartoon politics, put a green stripe on your black star and suddenly anarchism is reduced to saving trees. Put a red stripe on your black star and anarchism is just about the class war. So going beyond cartoon politics is absolutely vital. Sectarianism leads straight to authoritarianism, for as soon as one identifies with the correct anarcho-sect, everyone else is wrong. The founder of the correct ideology is inevitably accorded more power than his or her soon-to-be followers, and the sect musters its forces to engage in a holy war against all other brands of the anarchist rainbow. Let us not mimic the failures of the leftists. It is much easier for us to attack each other than to destroy the state. People have different visions of liberation, and any anarchist society will have a diversity of tactics and projects. Today, we need radical anarchist unions capable of stopping the unceasing machine, radical writers that inspire and spread knowledge, militants to fight pigs in the streets, and tree-sitters to save the last of wild nature. In other words, we need more anarchy. Our campaign is life. So, we want to change the world. Where to begin? A smorgasbord of issues and campaigns surrounds us on all sides, each clamoring for attention. Should we fight to save the last of the ancient forests, help the impoverished community down the street, advocate for the homeless, fight white power, combat pig brutality, shut down the sweatshops, or aid the landless farmers movement in Brazil? The problem seems so much bigger than any one person or group could possibly comprehend. The world suffers from more injustice and pain than any single person could hope to heal, heal alone. We have to do everything and more. All around us there is an array of ideologies offering ready-made answers, be it the latest deviant sect of communism or Hare Krishna consciousness. For those of us who have been, quote, changing the world, unquote, for many years, it is easy to be cynical about the supermarket of ideologies that the modern activists can buy into. 
We have to find some way of saving our world while avoiding easy answers, answers and false shortcuts. Focusing on a single campaign is a common alleyway for activists to get trapped in. Each campaign tries to advertise itself as the next crucial battle against the man, where results will finally be achieved. The enemy of the particular campaign is often presented as a real master of puppets behind the ills of the world, and the enemies of all other competing campaigns, nothing but puppets. Each campaign competes for members among a limited pool of activists, taking away time from not only other causes, but from the daily life of the activists, leading to burnout. Every campaign wants us to buy into it. Could there be a way to fight for change without treating activism as a market for justice? Obsessive focus on single-issue campaigns can lead us to end treat causes and each other as objects with a particular value ready for display or consumption. Nearly every campaign is connected and necessary, and we've got to win them all to really accomplish anything. Winning in ways that the government and corporations will never see coming. Anarchy has a flexibility to overcome many of the traditional problems of activism by focusing on revolution, not as another cause, but as a philosophy of living. This philosophy is as concrete as a brick being thrown in the window or flowers growing in gardens. By making our daily lives revolutionary, we destroy the artificial separation between activism and everyday life. Everyday life. Why settle for comrades and fellow activists when we can have friends and lovers?